Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NoCo FM. Please don't go. I need you so I... Hello, everyone, and welcome to Feminist Hot Dog, the news, humor, and cultural survival podcast by, for, and about women and people of all genders who experience sexism. Something I've shared on this show a few times is that I used to be a journalist, and I have a very special love in my heart for magazines in particular. So when my guest today reached out to me and told me she ran an online feminist magazine, my inner feminist nerd got really excited because... From just my general life and uh, specifically from doing this show, I'm acutely aware that when it comes to feminist content, you really have to go searching. So I love platforms like her magazine Fembot that really commit to feminist content as both worthy and necessary. Um, And Fembot's mission and Feminist Hot Dog's mission have a lot of overlap in terms of finding space to resist our current cultural and political situation and celebrating our identities um, when other um, people around us may may not be. So I'm very excited. I have lots of questions, but before we dive in, I'd like to welcome you, Alyssa Medina, to Feminist Hot Dog. Thank you so much. I'm super excited to be here. And um, I love that you love magazines. <laughs> it makes my yes. job easier. <laughs> yeah. Online magazines are so great because you get the content all the time. So you don't have to wait. You don't have to have that um, period when you've already read everything and then you have to go running to the mailbox. So um, to start off with, I would just like to hear a little bit about you. And I've been um, I've been listening to a new podcast recently that's hosted by a woman named Jana Schmeeding, and she always starts her interviews by asking guests to um, to tell us what words you use to describe yourself and your identity. Well, that's a, that's a little bit of a hard one because I feel like I encompass so many different things, but I mainly consider myself uh, an intersectional feminist. I'm also Armenian, so I'm an Armenian feminist. Um, and I also live in New York, so I feel like I'm like a New Yorker hybrid, um, of being from LA. And so all of these different locations and all of these different types of cultural, you know, background really, I feel like make up my identity. Very cool. And so right off the bat, I'm curious to know, did you always identify as a feminist or, and is that, or is that a word that meant different things to you at different points in your, in your life? Yeah, I definitely didn't know what a feminist was until maybe I was about 20. I think that, I think that earlier on, I just really wanted to be someone that didn't ascribe to like any social boundaries. I think that you know, growing up when you're a teenager, if you are not around somebody that uses that F word, you could easily like misunderstand it. And I think that that's why what's so great about social media now is that a lot of teenagers and a lot of young kids can really identify themselves in what they want to be. So I think I just, in terms of like starting to use the word feminist, it started out with 
um, when I went to college and taking classes and being an English major and just having professors use words like misogynist that I never really understood what, what it meant. Um, and when you're an English major, you really learn the definitions and histories of words. And once you realize that, I think that it makes you stronger in identifying with a social movement. And what would you say, you've, you've mentioned a couple of them, but what would you say are some of the major mile markers in your, in your feminist life, kind of moments that really shaped the way that you think about being a woman and being a feminist and, and kind of your version of that? Um, I, a couple years ago, I had a job interview and I had put FemBot on my resume and they did an exclusive like meeting with me to talk about my feminism. And I, and it was interesting. <laughs> it, was, it was very like, like we're going to put you in this room and really interrogate you on why you're a feminist. And I, I think at that moment I realized that this word is so much more powerful beyond me, beyond anything anyone is uttering it. And I think that that moment I was like, this is crazy and this is going to change the world. If, you know, if somebody wants to put you in a room and interrogate you about a magazine that you created, I think that that's, I don't know, I think that's like a little alarmingly interesting but also shows just how strong it is um yeah and so I would agree uh, with alarmingly interesting <laughs> like it's and I think because you're obviously kind of a you know um critical thinker uh -huh. I'm sure I just can't imagine what would be going through my mind at that point you're like I really want to analyze this but it's happening to me so I have to actually like live through it at the same time that's um did they offer you the job they did surprisingly they did they surprisingly they did and I would also say another milestone was when I was um another again like in a room one-on-one -on -one with a feminist studies professor and she, you know, I asked her, um, you know, about academia and I asked her about, you know, why, why, why be an academic if nobody really reads your writing? And she's a feminist studies professor, does all her studies on feminism. I won't say who she is, but she goes, my writing is for me. Yeah, it's about social justice, but my writing is just for me. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm a feminist. I don't ascribe to that idea. Like, if I'm going to write about feminism, I think everybody should, should read it and know about it. And I think that those two instances in my life made me realize that visibility is so important. And there's, there's not enough individuals that are going to talk about feminism in your life. And this is, this is kind of, if you want to be that individual, you've got to do it yourself <laughs> type of mentality. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, it's visibility and accessibility. You have to put it out there in a way that you don't necessarily have to, like you were saying, have a specialized degree or um, super expensive access to some academic database or something like that to, to even know that it exists. I know that the origin story of Fembot is 
pretty long and involved and it, it actually starts started in 2007 is that right yeah it started when I was 16 um wow so can you give us the kind of the quick and dirty version of like how it started and, and the evolution? Because I know it's been through a number of iterations, right? Before it kind of arrived at being Fembot. Exactly. So at, when I was 16, I wanted to create like an online magazine. Um, and I, I was a part of this like anime fan site called Gaia Online. Um, for anyone who's listening, it's kind of like Neopets. Um and so I found my co-founder there and we called it Reasons to be Beautiful. And it was just like a bunch of personal essays on why, why people are the way they are. And that kind of matriculated into Fembot. Years down the line, we would always try to perfect what we were doing, always try to find writers. We had like a, a digital magazine. And so it just through different iterations, it became Fembot. Um, right before Trump got elected, we were really trying to like, we were, I think it was back in 2000, 2015, 2014-ish, where I was just fresh out of college and I realized that I, I wasn't really getting job interviews for jobs that I wanted. Um, and so I just kind of, and during that year off, I, I ended up applying for grad school but within this, Fembot was really created. I think me and my co-founder, we we were both really trying to learn how to write better, how to market better, uh, how to design better through the years. And so it was always a constant conversation. We would talk almost weekly about how are how what are we going to do? How are we going to make a feminist website? And well, that leads directly into my next question, which is you're very explicit on the site that Fembot is an intersectional publication. and But intersectionality was not a term most people knew in 2007. And even, you know, to some extent um, in 2013-14, you know, more people did, but not, you know, it's really, I think, become into more common use in, in the last few years. So I'm curious um, to hear as your own feminism changed and evolved, how that has influenced the content and kind of specifically with, um, in terms of your, how you approach intersectionality as an editor. And I know we're going to talk about that a little bit in more detail later, but I'm, I'm just kind of interested to, um, to hear sort of how your journey and Fembot's journey kind of um, coincided. Yeah, so um, in 2010 is when I first entered college, and so I ended up taking a lot of classes like ethnic studies, anthropology, um, women's studies, gender studies. So within that realm, Stephanie, my co-founder, was also um, doing her education, and we started really, our minds started changing rapidly at the same time. Um, once I started taking classes for my second major, which was gender studies, is when the alarm started going off in my head that intersectional feminism is the only type of feminism that I would ever subscribe to. Um, and 
It's funny because Stephanie and I had recently had a conversation because in ent- to enter our Facebook group, our FemBot Facebook group, you need to identify as an intersectional feminist. And most of the time, the answers are, I don't know what that is, but I Googled it and I, I am an intersectional feminist. And I think just by taking those little steps, if people notice that we are not just a feminist magazine, we are an intersectional feminist magazine. I think that people are more aware of the term and will Google it. Um, and self-education is a really big, important part of FemBot. Um, in a lot of our articles, you kind of have to have a little bit of knowledge on feminism. And if you don't, we embed links into all of our articles that talk about certain pop-out keywords and things like that. But in terms of subscribing to intersectional feminism, we try as much as possible to highlight stories from people of color, um, women of color, trans women, trans men. Um, and we, and we found that that, that really works for us. Um, we've, you know, one of our writers recently was submitted into the Huffington post because she wrote a really great article on being a bearded woman. Um, and you don't really get those types of articles in even in feminist magazines now, even in women's magazines now, they see people as kind of an anomaly and not as people and as the mm-hmm. forefront of their magazine. Um, and like we say, like in our in our description, we aren't clickbait. We're just intersectional feminists for other intersectional feminists. And so tell us a little bit about your writers. How do you find writers for FemBot and um, and who are they and what are they about? So our writers, we have a very, very varying base of writers. We have like professional feminist writers. Um, we have, you know, long-term uh, people that have just are not writers. They just do this on their free time and they just want to submit to us. And then we also... Um, recently created a fembot teen section which teens can submit their writing to us and get it published which is like one of our hottest sections at the moment because there's unless you want teen vogue there's really nothing online for teens um so we try to create a community where everyone of all ages ethnicities genders non-binary people can can really submit to our magazine very cool and so i am interested to know um what some of the challenges that you faced as the editor um, of a feminist magazine. And I noticed, I don't, I don't want to give too much airtime to trolls, but I do notice (laughs) that you have a note on all your Instagram posts, um, specifically asking readers not to feed the trolls. So I'm just curious um, if you have found that to, you know, what that's been like for you to get that negative attention and if you think of trolls as a challenge or are you able to find anything um, valuable at all in their existence? Yeah. So I, um, I do, I'm the chief digital officer and co-founder. So I do everything that you see digitally. So I make graphics to writing the copy and most of the time trolls don't, understand how algorithms work and if you're commenting on our post you're giving so much amazing visibility to that post you're contributing to the social media social media so i that's why i put the disclaimer on our instagram post because 
if a troll is commenting on our on our Instagram posts, we clearly have a, a political stance, and it's never it's never going to be an ambiguous political stance. And so, if they're commenting on that, the way that Instagram works is that they're the rest of their feed is going to see that their friends are going to see that and this is just me kind of geeking out on you as, as a digital strategist but the way that social media works is that the more people comment on your post the more visibility it gives and so tell us where we can find and follow um uh, either you or you and fembot yes yeah, so um i mainly just go by fembot they uh it, you could find us on in, on Instagram at fembotmag. All of our all of our social media on Facebook is fembotmag and Twitter. Um, and we just almost reached for forty thousand likes on on Facebook. So congratulations! Thank you. That's awesome. Um, so, is there anything else about yourself? Or I mean, I assume you there you have many aspects of your life other than fembot. Um, is there anything else that you'd like? about you that you'd like to share with us other projects or other things that you're passionate about i am um i am going to be doing a youtube show for fembot called online with fembot and we are going to be interviewing a slew of individuals um that are really unique and that aren't you know just like ceos of companies because a lot of you know as as a feminist podcaster, I think you see that it's it's definitely a hierarchy of people. Um, so I'm excited to just get new voices out there. Just like you, I applaud everything that you do. I think that this podcast is awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's a it's a mutual admiration. So we are going to talk about what made our feminist hearts sing lately. Um, and I, what made my feminist heart sing was a movie that I watched um, that I, I will give the disclaimer that this movie was made in 1982. And so it is not, I would not say an intersectional feminist movie, but it is, um, one that I saw mentioned on like a list of like feminist cult classics or something like feminist cult classics you've never seen. And I was like, yeah, I've never seen that. So I watched it and it, I was, um, even though I was kind of picking it apart the whole time, cause it definitely has a, a lot of issues by 2019 standards. I also was, pretty delighted by it all the way through. And the reason I needed, I just really needed, um, some mindless escape. Um, this last, I mean, obviously things have been rough <laughs> in the news for, um, for a long time, but I feel like this, these last few weeks in particular have been very rough. So, um, the movie, um, uh, is called ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains. Have you ever seen this movie or heard of it? No. Uh, I had not either. And I was talking to another guest about it, um, yesterday actually. And she pointed out that the, um, even the title was a little, um, was used very binary language. And I was <laughs> like, that's, that's right. Um, I would never, I, I would never address a group as ladies and gentlemen. So I was happy she pointed that out. But um, 
the movie came out in 1982 and it stars Diane Lane and Laura Dern when they were like 16 and 17 years old. And um, they're really, truly babies. And it was directed by Lou Adler, who I have come to understand is a um, somewhat famous director. And it was written by a woman whose name is Nancy Dowd, but she used the pseudonym Rob Morton uh, for some reason, which I will um, explain in a minute. But because um, as I was watching it, I just kept thinking, I feel like a woman wrote this. Like, I feel like this has um, the this is ringing true to me as, as the thoughts of someone who has kind of experienced male gaze and experienced invisibility. And so then when I kind of looked into it more, but I, yeah, I didn't see any women's names in the, in the credits. And so when I looked into it more, I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's what's going on. Um, we've got this name swap here. Um, so the premise of the movie is that the, um, there are three focuses on three, uh, teenage girls who live in a working class town somewhere in the Rust Belt. I'm not sure exactly where. They um, Two of them are sisters. They've lost their mother, I believe. Um, their mother passes away. And they're just kind of at loose ends. They're, you know, sort of quote unquote troubled. There's not a tremendous amount of character, character development in this <laughs> film. So, you know, they have they have all the markers of being kind of, you know, girls who don't have a lot of direction and bad attitudes. And they all decide to form a band and they haven't really practiced at all. But then of course, through a series of unlikely events, they find themselves on tour and they uh, are touring with these two other all male bands and who are both terrible in sort of different ways um, and give them a hard time and, you know, don't see them as real musicians and um, which they're really not. And then um, the this little troupe is rounded out by their producer slash bus driver who is um, a Rastafarian and the only person of color in the entire movie that I um, could tell. And he's he's a really delightful character, but also somewhat problematic because he's also kind of cast as like their spiritual guide, which is um, a little bit weird. So anyway, so Corinne... Um, Diane Lane plays a character called Corinne Burns and she changes her, her stage name is third degree Burns and she is the lead singer and she decides that she is just going to go out there and do her thing and express herself, you know, however she wants. So she comes out on stage in her underwear with this wild punk haircut and she dyes these white stripes in her hair and she has this really intense makeup job with this, these big red slashes over her eyes. And the audience um, doesn't get it at all. They are totally not, not, do not support her and, um, and kind of boo and hiss her. And so she just sort of freaks out on them and goes on this tirade about how they're, you know, chumps and losers and um, et cetera, et cetera. And so her little speech or tantrum, I guess, gets picked up by the media. There's a reporter there and it goes viral. So this is the 1980s version of going viral, right? So, um, and, and it's interesting because there are some um, young women in the audience who are really moved by what she says and, and 
become kind of obsessed with her and become obsessed with the stains. That's the name of their band is the stains. And so, um, the, basically what happens is that this is a movie about who makes, who decides who's a celebrity, what makes you a celebrity. And it's, and it really sort of examines the intersection of like art and media and capitalism. And so it's not, again, it's not a great movie in terms of plot or characters, <laughs> but it is incredibly entertaining. And I feel like for it, for a movie that old, it actually holds up pretty well in terms of the kinds of questions it asks about like who makes, who makes you famous and what, um, and then what is authentic art and what is just sort of people taking what they want from you and reproducing it. And, um, and what do you owe your audience as an artist? So I just think, um, I think it's worth a worth a look with the caveat that you know it's got all these problems. The thing with Nancy Dowd and uh, is that she apparently took her name off the movie because um at the end of the film there's this kind of weird sort of music like very MTV style music video and I think she felt like she did not intend the movie to end that way and she didn't like it and so there was a conflict I guess with the director or whoever had made that decision and she was like no I'm I'm not putting my name on this anymore because I feel like the way that they ended it really changed and um, kind of cheapened the message of the movie which I can kind of see if you watch it you might I think you could kind of see why um, I don't think this movie made any money, but it is considered a cult classic. And obviously Diane Lane and Laura Dern are very talented and were even back then when they were, um, were just barely, you know, not even, um, not even 18 yet. So um, I just wanted to share that because I thought it, it was, it was very entertaining. It gave me the escape that I needed. And it was also kind of thought provoking in terms of, um, Wow, like this this movie was ahead of its time and I think it it almost sort of foretold a lot of the things that I think people who uh study social media and the ways that celebrity happens now um you know and it's interesting how weirdly accurate it is. So so there you go. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. I I definitely want to like look into it now. I know. Maybe I'll try to, maybe I'll write a review and submit it to Fembot. <laughs> that would be cool. No, I love your feminist analysis. I it's, love it. It's quite, it's quite something. How about you? What has made your feminist heart sing lately? <laughs> well, it's not, it's definitely not as like cool as that. Um, but I mean, maybe it is. I have been obsessed with watching Queer Eye lately. Oh, so this fourth fourth season just came out right yeah the fourth season just came out and um I you know I I I do think that some of it is a little too much about them you know mm. like I do the dance sequences and when they're they're kind of like trying to relate to people I feel like it gets a little it it it, it dips its toes a little bit in narcissism and that celebrity culture, like now they're much more abrasive on their, their own stories versus like season one where no one really knew about them and they were more interested in the other person. Um, but I do think that Queer Eye is still, is, is, 
It's one of the most feminist things on TV right now. Um, I think that it it's so, so intersectional. There's so there's so much to be said about classism, about capitalism, about people of color, um, ableism. Um, that I think that is is such a great show. And I do think I do think that there are underlying tones of like the way they market it to you know the outsider or the other, but. I, I, I quite enjoy it. I think it's, it, I really like how empathetic it is towards other people's struggles. And it's very positive too, which yeah. is refreshing. Yeah. It's so, and that's why the thing is that it's almost like horrible to critique it because it's just so amazingly positive and it makes you feel so happy. I agree with you that sometimes the, um, connection of their story to whoever they're working with can feel a little contrived sometimes, but I get it. You know, they, they only have like a very limited time, um, within which to form those relationships. And I, I love how it really encourages you to see the humanity in people that you might otherwise really make some assumptions about. Um, and it gives them, gives the, the folks whose you know whose lives they're helping to transform um, exposure to you know five gay guys that they might never have experienced in their life before. So I think yeah, I do think that there's something really really special about it. I am going to ask you the dear feminist hot dog question for this uh, episode which is about white feminism. And I'm curious, uh, dear feminist hot dog, Alyssa, how do you guard against white feminism in your own life and then also as a media curator? And related question, do you ever see white feminism or trans-exclusive thinking, which I think of as kind of a subset of white feminism, showing up in submissions? And how do you address that with your writers? Yeah, definitely. And I love this question. So thank you so much for being very attuned to what white feminism can create in our society. Um, I really like to put these serious issues and really contrast them with comedy. So I think that it's really important to, especially like when we are trying to like educate ourselves online, I think memes really, really help. Um, we, we always want to like highlight like people of color or people that are non-white. Um, and so, you know, even just recently we had a meme that was joking on how white writers write black people and it was it was kind of like it was a really funny meme people were like tagging all their friends in it and you know it's almost like when you see the humor in something I think that that's when it's like fun to like take a step back and be like wow this is this is a problem but I do think that it's always really important to highlight the actual stories of people of color like when we're talking about white feminism I noticed that when a white feminist takes on another white feminist, it just kind of, it kind of like loses its like, 
like juice in a way. I think that people are just like, oh, that, that, that's just two women bickering about like the definition of feminism. And I think that that's when it kind of gets lost. But I think that when you embed other people's opinions into it, it makes it that much more qualified to be an actual way of like the knowledge and, and how feminism should be working. We have a um, a column on our site that's called Ask, you know, Ask Us Anything, Ask Fembot Anything. And someone recently asked us a question on what on a trans on why people become trans women. And the question was very transphobic. Um, I don't even want to repeat it because it was just so it's just it, it just it, it offends people. And so instead of us answering that from like obviously like a non-trans person perspective, we had one of our readers answer the question and we posted to our Facebook group saying, you know, um, trigger warning, this is this is very offensive, but can somebody please speak to this because we're desperate. We don't have anyone else to speak to this on our staff, and we want we want the question out there. Um, and somebody replied, and it was and it was such an educational reply that it taught me a lot. And it came from someone who is a trans woman who has experienced sexism, who has experienced you know transphobic arguments that I would have never been able to write myself. And so I think that embedding those stories. You know, you're not going to you're not going to find that on Glamour magazine. Glamour magazine isn't going to take the time to, like, find somebody online, you know, and or even like the New York Times. You know, they want something that's like kind of prim and perfect and grammatically beautiful. And I get that. Um, but it's also like the way with Fembot is that we we take the time for real stories. You know, and I think that that's just so that's just so much more important. And if something if you use an and wrong, then that's OK. You know, so that's how we combat white feminism. I think we combat white feminism through education, through people's real stories. Um, and as someone who passes for white being Armenian, I think that it's also really important to just have these daily conversations with your friends. You know, like if somebody is obsessed with Lena Dunham. Um, you kind of have to set them straight and, you know, and you kind of have to introduce them to new writers, to people of color writers, to documentaries, to authors, because they think that sometimes it's an echo chamber, um, especially if, if you grew up in a very secluded, all white neighborhood, um, unless you and, and unless you go to a very inclusive college, you're never going to get that. And I think that that's what's so important about the internet and educating yourself is that there's those people have a lot to contribute to this world. And it's not just like the main hierarchy of white people that are, that are ruling what media and culture is because it's still predominantly whitewashed and you do still have to find like new avenues and different ways of thought. And it just, it, it really takes some inner work. It's like, you know, just as like, you know, mental health issues aren't talked about in our society, I, I don't think race issues aren't talked enough about. I think that that's really, really important. And it's always fun to find a meme and piss people off. <laughs> All right, well, we are going to talk about the Hot Dog Hall of 
fame. And would you like to go first? I, I of course I will. Um, Great. I am nominating my professor from UC Riverside. Her name is Jane Ward. She specializes in sexuality and gender studies. She has recently come, not recently, a couple years ago, um, came out with a book called Not Gay. And it analyzed uh, the ways in which straight men um, consider them, some men, straight men consider themselves not gay, but they partake in bro culture. So, you know, they'll pet themselves on the butt or even like do um, a little bit more sexual practices. And she looks into um, the military and um, fraternities. And so it's this great analysis on, um, you know, how sexuality is a spectrum and sexuality is an un, sometimes an untold secret. Um, and I, uh, so during UCR, I took her class, I took three of her classes. The, the one that was the most notable to me was the lesbian sexuality class. Um, and she, the way she navigates the classroom is just like her writing. Her writing is spectacular and she, she aligns everybody in a circle. She conforms to all these amazing, like feminist consciousness raising, raising practices, um, where everyone gets the chance to speak, everyone gets the chance to like, you know, say their pronouns. And she's just such a great, like, person in this world to educate people on feminism and, you know, even like lesbian culture. And I think that she deserves to be recognized for her work and for her literature and for her teaching. Awesome. Tell me her name again. Her name is Jane Ward. Jane Ward, um, thank you for your great work and welcome to the Hot Dog Hall of Fame. Uh, so the, I'm actually, I would like to mention several women because we are recording on the weekend of the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing this week. And so in observation of that, which that anniversary doesn't actually mean that much to me personally, but I did, um, I wanted to mention, I read this article on the guardian by a writer named David Smith that was essentially talked about some of the women who were involved, very closely involved in the moon landing who are really getting no recognition or press surrounding this anniversary. So I'll link the article in the show notes, but I just wanted to briefly mention these women. So one was um, Jamie Flowers Coplin, and she was kind of like a one-woman support team slash handler slash personal assistant for Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins. Um, so her job was essentially keep everyone informed, protect the astronauts from outsiders because they had become these kind of un... Um, reluctant celebrities, right? And people wanted access to them, but they needed to stay in this very focused frame of mind. So she was the one who made sure that they were able, kind of had the conditions to be able to really focus and do their jobs. And so she made sure everything ran smoothly. Um, but she also had tremendous technical knowledge as well. So she was really not so, it wasn't so much that she was like um, only the personal assistant, but she was also like, actually very helpful to them in terms of like the technical aspects of their work. Another woman is Margaret Hamilton. She was a lead programmer um, 
on the Apollo guidance computer. I don't really know what that means, but um, it sounds very impressive. It uh, So she led the team that developed the in-flight software for the command and lunar modules. And she was the person who um, coined the phrase software engineering, which I did not know. I think that's really very interesting. Um, and then there's Katherine Johnson, who is a name that a, a lot of people will recognize because she's the math genius whose work was depicted in the movie Hidden Figures. Um, she analyzed years and years worth of flight data, and she was um, the person who was trusted to calculate the tra to do the um, the trajectory analyses that were you know absolutely fundamental for the safe return of um, of these missions. And so, and she is, um, of course, African-American and worked at Langley from the mid fifties to the mid eighties. So she experienced segregation and discrimination in her work for many, many, many years. Um, and now, you know, famously and, uh, has, was able to find a way to persevere and, and really prove herself and support other women of color who did, um, did similar work, um, at Langley. And so the last two are Frances Poppy Northcutt. She was the first female engineer to be part of mission control at NASA. Um, she, after her career there, became a very outspoken feminist and um, helped combat sex discrimination in the Houston Fire Department. And she went on to be a criminal defense lawyer, actually, and is now 74 and is the current president of the Texas chapter of the National Organization for Women. And then finally, Joanne Morgan, who was an aeros uh, aerospace engineer and the only woman in the launch room when Apollo 11 um, went into orbit. And so, and she also became the first female senior executive at the Kennedy Space Center. So I just wanted to give them a shout out, um, the women behind the moon landing. Welcome to the Hot Dog Hall of Fame. Welcome. Yay. Welcome. <laughs> All right. Well. Alyssa, I have really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for, for joining us today and sharing your story and telling us a little bit about FemBot. Thank you. Thank you so much. So listeners, thank you for being here. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and to support the show on Patreon. Our music is by Ava Luna and Loyalty Freak Music, and our audio editing is by Square Lightning Design. Until next time, love yourself and love your buns. Goodbye. This has been a production of NOCO FM. 